Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, space colonization snubbed as humanity opts for consensual virtual existence on black hole event horizon eating hot dogs and pizza. Vegans dissatisfied until universe ends. But that was going to happen anyway. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This week we talk to Catherine Asaro, author of the Major Bajan series and other Bain books. This is a novel set in Catherine's Scolian Empire series world, but it is a standalone series and a standalone, really a standalone novel that's an SF mystery cross that's really well done with a tough and spirited detective in Bajan who comes from the uh, hard scrabble undercity and she rose through the ranks up of the military before becoming a PI so she's very competent at what she does uh, so we'll discuss that plus we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece Uncompromising Honor now here's the news Hey, listen, we are trying out something this month, and I'd really appreciate it if you would pass the word along to uh, everyone that you know who likes to read. Um, also, we would love for you to take advantage of it as well. July is Independence Month at Bain eBooks. Nothing says independence like David Drake and the RCN series. So we are offering 28% off on the latest RCN novel, to Clear Away the Shadows. The reason it's 28 is because that's $2 off on the ebook. So save $2 on the ebook of To Clear Away the Shadows, putting it at $4.99, plus save a dollar on all the ebooks in the RCN series. So every ebook has a dollar knocked off of its price in the RCN series. Adventure Beyond the Edge of the Known Universe, the truce between Cinnabar and the Alliance is holding for the moment. RCN ship Far Traveler is probing sponge space to open routes for Cinnabar traders and for RCN warships to follow. The crew is poised to clear more of the shadows away from the deep past than ever before in human history, if they survive. This is David Drake's legendary RCN science fiction series as it sails on. So get to clear away the shadows at 28% off. Get the whole RCN series at $1 off for each ebook. Now, book one in the series, With the Lightnings, you may know the first edition is available at the Bain Free Library for free, but there is a second edition with some new intro material from David you could uh, also get. This huge sale runs through July 31st, all month long. Two bucks off is pretty good, especially if it's David Drake. And a dollar off on all those great RCN ebooks. Complete your collection. Tell somebody about this. These prices are available at Bain eBooks, where we'd love to get your eBooks, but they're also, you know, they're available at Amazon and all of our eBook distributors too. Full details are up on the front page at Bain.com, but you'll see these sales prices pop up just by searching for the eBooks you want. The July Independence Month eBook sale. Check it out.
Hey, I want to welcome Catherine Asaro to the podcast. Hello, Catherine. How's it going? Hi, it's going great. I'm really glad to be here. Well, let me uh, give a little bit of your background, as if people did not know. Two-time uh, Nebula Award winner, Catherine Asaro. She has got an MA in physics and a PhD in chemical physics from Harvard. She's a former ballerina and jazz dancer and, uh, and a dance teacher for many years. I don't know if you're still doing that these days or not, but uh, that was a big part no, of your life. No, I haven't right, taught dance. Yeah, it was. Mostly I taught math the past few years. Uh, oh, that's Everybody's right. least favorite subject. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's having a good teacher is half the battle. Um, Catherine is the creator of the popular Scolian uh, science fiction series with uh, Ruby Dice, Diamond Star, Carnelians. Um, are those the entries in that? I'm trying to think of any others published by Bain. And then her other books include uh, Alpha and Sunrise Alley out from Bain. And, of course, what we'll talk about is the Major Bajan series, a science fiction mystery series. It's set in the world of the Scolian Empire uh, and includes the books Undercity, The Bronze Skies, and now The Vanished Seas at booksellers everywhere. Let's talk about the conception and the, and the creation of the book a little bit before we dive into the story, maybe. Well, I wrote about some of the background in a blog article that actually was posted today on John Scalzi's com. He has something called The Big Idea. And I had an sure, article yeah. published there. I talked about where the background, you know, why I think the Undercity, what might have helped contribute to the development in my mind of it. And the basic idea of that article is usually when people say to you, you know, where do you get your ideas? I never know how to answer because I don't know where they came from. And it was the same with the Undercity. I had no idea where it came from. And if I hadn't been asked to write an article or to help with a, a Wikipedia article about my old high school, I might have never known but I realized a lot as I was writing that article. And that's all in the essay that I wrote for John's blog. Well, maybe expand on that just a little bit, because that sounds intriguing. <laughs> Are you saying that you put in the clicks? Well, I went, to, I went to a high school that people say call urban. They call it inner city, you know, which I'm not comfortable with those words. I mean... Okay, those words are code, basically, for high minority enrollment, you know, high expected high crime rate and low income. And it's a stereotype. And it's not that it's actually not true. I mean, there's certainly that aspect to the school, but that's only one aspect. And a lot of people connote a lot of negative implications that go along with that, that make me kind of grind my teeth sometimes. <laughs> but definitely, uh, you know, that was my background. And, you know, I go into how this, the school was a rather unique school in that in the course of 40 years, when it first opened, I mean, it was still an inner city urban school, if that's what you want to call it. But it was also one of the top public schools in the entire state of California. And over the course of 40 years, it went from being one of the best to one of the worst. 
to the point where people were scared to death to go near the school. I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't use scared to death because there was, in fact, you know, quite a few deaths over the years. And it was John F. Kennedy High School and around the turn of the millennium, people were saying JFK stood for jail for kids. I mean, it was got to be a pretty scary place. It's rebounding now. Um, and it's, you know, on the uprise again. But, you know, a lot, there's a lot of complications on why that happened to the school. And entire master theses have been written on this school because it's such a, a good example of problems and hopefully solutions to, you know, the difficulties of undercity urban, I mean, of inner city urban schools. And so, yeah. you know, I realized as I was helping with that article and I was reading all this background in the school that I hadn't known when I was a student there, I started going, oh, my gosh, I see where that comes from. And, you know, the Undercity is a creation. It's a science fiction creation. It's a fantastical place. But, you know, I see where the seeds of some of the things in there came from. So I wrote about that in the essay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I totally see the analogy. On the other hand, you probably didn't have um, completely uh, uh, um, translucent-skinned people living deep under your uh, high school tending enormous waterworks abandoned by aliens, but uh, maybe you can. I don't know. Where where are we in the in her development in the series and and what's she gone through up till the beginning of the vanished seas? Well, she was a child in the undercity, which is it's a very unusual place to most people in their civilization, especially the city of Cries, which is on top. It's in the desert, you know, under the sky. And the Undercity is actually under the ground in this extensive, beautiful ruins that network the desert. That's what the Vanished Sea actually refers to. It's a desert that was once many, many thousands of years ago, an ocean. And the terraforming on the planet is failing, and so now it's a desert. The civilization under that desert is, you know, it's poverty and beauty hand in hand. It's a beautiful civilization, but they also don't have a lot. And they tend to keep to themselves. It's very difficult to find them unless you're already, you know, a native of that culture, which Baj is, Major Bajan is. But it's a lot of poverty, especially in her youth. You know, I wrote that city... Uh, Children of the du I mean, I wrote the story, Children of the Dust, that you, I believe you published it in 2017. It was one of the short pieces of fiction that was up at the website. And it's about yeah. her childhood and how they had to struggle to survive and eat and, you know, everything. And she eventually enlisted in the army in part to get out, you know, to get out of that cycle of poverty. Also wanderlust, she wanted to see the stars. And she ended up spending 20 years in the Army. She was able to uh, make the very difficult transition from being enlisted to being an officer, which in my world, the universe I created, is even more difficult than in real life. But she did it, and she spent 20 years till she became a major. She retired and worked as a PI. 
in the first Bain book, Undercity, she had come back at the request of the Royal House of Majda in the City of Cries. They wanted her to solve a mystery for them, to find one of their runaway children. That first book more concerned her getting used to being in the Undercity again. Because she's the only one who could go there. Nobody from the above city, the city above the desert, could go there. You know, they might not even make it out alive if they tried. Or they might just not find anybody because everybody hides. She had to come back to terms with her past. And that's what happens to her in the first book. In the second book, you know, she's more at ease with being back there. And she's starting to develop programs to help her people. You know, things like uh, martial arts teams for the kids and a philosophy of life that she's hoping will break the cycle of violence and poverty for these young people. And that I built up more in the second book. By this third book, she's starting to make progress. She's starting to get licenses for her people to sell their goods to, you know, the citizens in the above city. So, you know, she's making some progress. She's making things better. She's getting medical care. But the undercity is still this mysterious place. I mean, it took a while even for the rich people in the city of Christ to realize that more than just a few homeless people and criminals live there. So that evolution has been going on through the books. But you don't have to have read them in order to get that you know you might get a different picture a little bit different picture um of each book i mean of the undercity from each book but they are meant to be standalone so you don't need the history of one to understand what goes on in another yeah and but you explore a lot more of the the sort of deep history of the planet Raylicon in this book we really start getting getting back to the origins of things and why there is this this crazy system under the city um, and who those people are. You know, they started to become clear in the bronze skies. Um, but now it is uh, it's playing into the mystery. So what, what is the mystery that we start with with the Vanished Seas? Well, <laughs> the mystery in the Vanished Seas is that some of these rich folks are disappearing. They are literally vanishing, and they can't find them. There appears to be an explosion where they disappeared, but the explosions don't make sense. They can't find any trace of the people. And when they don't have success, they call in Bajan because she's very good at figuring out things like this. The problem is her ability to be one of the only people who can, you know, act as in both civilizations, that is, she operates fine now after all these decades with the above city people. She still isn't really comfortable there, but she can interact with them fine. She can also interact with the undercity. So she has this special ability to go between the two and find out things that most people in the above city can't find out. The problem is it looks like that very ability may get her killed as she's trying to solve what happened to these people. Yeah, um, because they're almost immediately in the first chapter after her, too. Um, so 
there's this big party, and uh, maybe this is a good way to get into talking about the aristocracy side of, of the... And this woman named uh, Maraquita seems to disappear, and things don't look good in the room she was in. And she's, she's married to um, a dude. Uh, is it Lucas? Yes. Um, and the, the mar- this is a matriarchal um, aristocracy, and you've created a, a really interesting sort of rules for it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the aristocracy, particularly the royalty on um, this planet, Raylacon, where the, planet, the book takes place, they're a remnant of a very ancient culture. Most of the culture in this Scolian Empire universe, I mean, it's egalitarian. They're modern. They're ruled by a democracy. Or, you know, each planet has its own way of electing or finding its representative. But the basic ideas are they have elective government. Few, very few places actually operate on the aristocracy anymore. But the aristocracy is still powerful in many ways, particularly this family, the Majda family, that employs Baj. Because, for one thing, this family has a financial empire that is itself, you know, a a very powerful influence. And they also have a very strong influence in the army. The matriarch of the house is also one of the joint commanders of the imperial military. She's in the army side. There's different branches, just like in our own military. But she's the joint commander for the pharaoh's army. So they're very established. They were once royalty on this planet. And they still, you know, supposedly they don't run the city of Christ, but they do, realistically. Supposedly the city of Christ is a civilian center, but the military presence is so strong that essentially the military officers in this royal house are, people are in awe of them. They know the power that they have. Well, Baj works for them. So she's in this weird position of they know what she can do. They know she can go places they can never get. But she's also comes from such a different background. She has a hard time dealing with them. You know, it's, she has this very strong ambiguity about dealing with all these rich people when she grew up with nothing. So there's a lot of tension in that. And it's on both sides. I mean, this one character, Colonel Lavinda Majda, is trying to bridge things with Baj. She's trying to find a way to understand Baj's background, just like Baj is trying to find a way to understand her. And that started really in Undercity when they first started interacting. It started to build in the bronze skies. And then in this book, we get to see a lot more of Lavinda. But they have, oh, yeah, yeah, and you asked about, it's a matriarchal society. So at one time in the past of this civilization, the women ran things. And they were very warlike. They had lots of wars. They were very, um, they kept their men in seclusion. They were very, they considered their princes their most prized possessions. I mean, they were really a bunch of sexist warrior queens. <laughs> 
And, you know, the remnants of that live on in some of the royal houses. And Majd is one of those royal houses. So their men are supposed to all be in seclusion. However, the same thing that makes the women so strong, I mean, genetics doesn't care. When you pass on your DNA, your sons and your daughters both get it. So a lot of the men, well, not a lot, a few of them have done things like said, I'm leaving, I'm going to university. (laughs) And they first hired Bosch to find one of their princes who ran away. And he'd been in seclusion all his life. And he ran away. And of course, he got into trouble because he had no idea what the outside world was. So she had to go find him or find out what happened to him, if he survived or not. And that's when she started to work for them. Yeah. And Lucas, uh, the uh, the husband of the, the woman who um, disappears at first, he's um, he's a pretty good guy. Uh, and, and there's a lot of women in power around him who just think he's eye candy. And you know, he's like, you know, tropey husband, right? Um, because he's a good looking guy. I have to confess, a little of that came from my experiences when I was in graduate school. Not that I had a relationship like that, but that I didn't look like what people expected for a theoretical physicist. So it was hard often for them to take me as seriously as they took the male graduate students. And I, I think that way worked. I think that background kind of worked its way into how people respond to him. And also the fact that Baj later learns he's not really, he's not this glamorous guy at all. He's more of a nerd. But he's put in this subculture of these very rich people with his very powerful wife that expects him to act a certain way. So because he loves his wife, he does his best to, you know, support her. He's pretty distraught. And Baj... He has a lot to gain. His wife was very powerful. She was very rich. That is true. They had no children. And men so can inherit. Right? Yeah. Yes, they can. So, it's legally, yeah. they can. So even though the, the royalty are still a bunch of sexist, legally, they can't do that. <laughs> they can't stop him from inheriting. Yeah. So, he, I mean, he's, he's the authorities. He's the first people that they're looking at. The authorities, in this case, um, are uh, corporation cops, right? The uh, Scorpio cop. Because that's the corporation that, that the disappeared woman was uh, the head of. And there was a huge merger well, she was going the vice on or president. acquisition. Oh, okay. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah, she was... She was one of the highest executives in the company. And there are some other executives who felt they were they should have received the promotions and benefits that she got. So her husband's not the only suspect. So um, the trails began to lead back, as they do in all of the major Baj <laughs> books, to the Undercity somehow. Um, and tell us a little bit about our cast of characters there. Um, about Dara, Jack, um, and and the kids that um, Baj is working with, and and the whole. At this point, Baj has figured out that this population has special characteristics. They are um, impasse. This is from the beginning of the book. It's not a big secret in the book. Um, 
So, uh, but the general people and the populace don't know this yet. Um, so there's there's that. Um, I guess l- let's talk about that milieu for a bit. There's a lot going on with the undercity. Um, the reason that these people retreated thousands of years ago to live there was because they were empaths. They had a lot of trouble dealing with, you know, large density civilization. And they didn't yet know how to protect themselves. Eventually in this culture, the because empaths are valuable in the culture uh, for a lot of reasons, including military reasons, which is why the military is so interested in them. Over the ages, over the, the centuries, they learned how to protect themselves or they were taught how to protect themselves by experts. But in the very beginning, these people had no protection, so they retreated to live under the ground. And there isn't a lot of back and forth with the above world, even on that planet, let alone with the rest of the empire. So, you know, they tended to concentrate the traits that made them empaths. It's not very good for their gene pool. I mean, there is some back and forth, so their gene pool isn't completely limited, but they do have a lot of problems due to inbreeding. But one of the things they ended up with, which is a new development as far as the military is concerned, is they discovered, you know, through Baj that there's this huge population with higher, way, way, way higher rates of these traits that they value than anywhere else in the, the their civilization. So all of a sudden, they're interested after, you know, literally thousands of years of neglect. A lot of it was dark ages, but in modern times, you know, it's hundreds of years of neglect. Suddenly, they're interested in these people, and the people in the Undercity don't want anything to do with them. They've been happy with the way they are. They don't like the people above the city. They don't even know, believe completely that they exist, just the way the people in the, the above city don't believe they the undercity exists. You know, they know. I mean, you can go look up. You, they have to steal. If you live in the undercity, you have to steal access to the webs. But they have these cyber writers who are really good at doing that. So they know that the city of cries above the desert does exist. They just don't believe a lot of what they read about it. So Baj is dealing with this, and she's dealing with how they feel about the rich people, and she's dealing with how the rich people feel about them. And, you know, it's like never the twain shall meet. They just, there's a lot of antagonism on both sides and a lot of misunderstanding. She's trying to find a way to help her people without them being destroyed by the people who want to use their abilities. And so that's a real balancing act for her. And, of course, there's Jack. (laughs) That's her. He was her lover when she was a kid. She left. When she came back, they picked up again. I mean, he's been her lover for her entire life. He was the first boy she ever kissed, you know, the first boy she ever loved. The only one, really, until she left. But he's a real character. I mean... He's a gambler. He was a gambler, consummate gambler when he was a kid until he, you know, he started getting beat up because he beat everybody. And he he would count cards. He'd go to casino, to gambling dens, and he'd start counting cards, and then they'd beat him up and kick him out. 
And he was really good at probability, mathematics, counting. You know, he had a very mathematical brain. So he got so good at gambling, nobody would play with him anymore. <laughs> so he started a casino. That was his dream. Well, gambling is illegal in the city of Christ. It's one of the most conservative cities anywhere in this civilization called the Scolian Imperialite. So he's got this casino that caters to what you'd call the glitterati in the city of Christ. These really rich people. And they can't come unless they're invited and they're brought down in blindfolds and, you know, they put things over their ears so they can't hear. And, you know, it's very hard to get there, but if he invites you, it's like playland, you know, this wonderful playland. Of course, everything's rigged. I mean, they're all electronic games. Who in their right mind would gamble with a computer? (laughs) But they do. And he's like the Robin Hood, I guess you could say, of the undercity. You know, he gets all this money from the rich people, and so he pays wages to his employees who are all hired from the undercity. He takes care of them medically. You know, he does all these things that they don't have because he's running this illegal casino. So the Majdas consider him, you know, one of the biggest undercity king crime kings there is. And, you know, the undercity considers him a hero because he employs and looks after so many of them. So it's a very complex situation. And Baj is right in the middle because he's her lover. And every now and then he'll turn up with her at something, like one of these affairs, you know, with the rich people. And he walks in there all dressed in black, looking scary, you know, and but he's rich, too, because he runs a casino. And half the people there know him because they frequent his casino, but they can't say anything because what they're doing is illegal. So it's very complicated. Yeah, and he's he's just generally a fun, roguish uh, uh, boyfriend for our main character as well, um, who is also an excellent source of information for her. <laughs> well, he knows what's going on places. You're talking about the impasse and why they're and that they're valuable. And the reason they're valuable is because they interact with this thing called the Kyle um, or Kyle. Um, what what is that, and how does that affect this world? Because it's really basic to the way uh, everything hangs together in this empire. Well, you know, I got the idea from. I'm an applied mathematician. I mean, I'm a physicist, but I'm a theoretical physicist. I basically work out mathematics and apply it to physical problems. And I absolutely love something called Hilbert space theory. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details. I wrote about it in an essay at the back of the book. So if people who like that stuff can go read all this math meepery. Yeah. So, and and this is something that... um that that's one of the things that's cool about the books is each of the books um while it is a mystery also has this sort of sense of wonder science fiction revelation in it as well and that was one of the revelations of the last book that there are some really cool um alien beasts um on the planet that that we get to meet um what is it the rusics yeah yeah they look Okay, the mystery around them is has to do with 
the terraforming of the planet. Somebody terraformed that planet, and the terraforming is failing. That is, they brought humans there and apparently terraformed the planet for them, or else they brought, and the, the terraforming didn't take, or else they terraformed it for a different race, and it's not good for humans. So there's some mystery about these beasts called the, the Ruziks because they look a little bit like Tyrannosaurus Rex, but they aren't really when you see them up close. For one thing, they don't have those short little arms. You know, they can use all four uh, limbs to run, but they're very intimidating. They're very large. <laughs> they're not they're not covered by feathers, which a lot of dinosaurs were. They're covered by iridescent scales, you know, that... Uh, reflect a lot of light because they're they're live in a desert so they're very intimidating animals and they live they mostly leave humans alone as long as you don't bother them <laughs> if you bother them then you're in trouble just the interactions of the characters with 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 those beasts um, also was a sort of wonder invoking sort of uh, uh, part of the book as well Oh I, oh, I know other, one other thing I want to talk about, um, which is my favorite part of the whole book, um, which is uh, Baja's relationship with her EI, Max, and the uh, the little bots that she has. Um, her relationship with Max, maybe talk about that and those, those cool bots that she deploys. Oh, yeah, yeah, the beetle bots. They're these little beetles, mechanical beetles that are small enough to fit in her pocket. She's got a red one and a green one. And they can go buzzing around. Max is the evolving intelligence that she's had it for about 10 years. And the whole time it, it evolved with her. It can access, you know, she wears them in these gauntlets, these high-tech gauntlets she wears. And they can connect through a biomech system in her body. They go along optical threads to her brain, and there's bioelectrodes in her brain. This is the military does this with its soldiers. So in her brain, these bioelectrodes, which she has to be protected. You have to have protective chemi chemicals when you put something like that in your brain. But when they get messages from her EI, they fire her neurons in a way so that the message becomes translated into what she interprets as thought. So it's like tech-induced telepathy. She's not a telepath, but she has tech-induced telepathy with this, you know, evolving intelligence that does all this stuff for her, and they work together. They're like a pair. He's her Watson to her Sherlock, I guess you could say. And he connects her to these bots. You know, like she'll tell, okay, she'll tell the bot, go spy on <laughs> this person who tried to kill me. Go find them and follow them and bring me back information. And they can do all sorts of cool stuff like that. They're like little itty bitty drones, you know. And they fly around and they can get to, into places, of course, where a human being can't fit. So she does all sorts of useful things with them. And Max can, you know, he does things like... uh well, he doesn't call it hacking or cracking systems, <laughs> but he does all sorts of things to help her that are probably not entirely legal. But, there, you know, at one point he says, I'm part of your mind, and she's thinking, well, no, you're not. And then she says, well, maybe he is, you know. You know, where do you draw the line after you've worked with something for 
you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. And he keeps insisting he has no feelings, but clearly he does have, uh, you know, he's her buddy. And the, um, also, uh, he's, he's a great workman. He has a sense of pride in his uh, non-hacking <laughs> hacking. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, though he does, you know, he, he does put the, he does quash some of her, like, for example, she discovers that the Majidas are going to do something that's going to affect her investments. So she says to Max, oh, we have to sell the stocks before they go down, you know, and he goes, do you know what insider trading <laughs> means? You do that, and then they plunge tomorrow. You're going to be in big trouble. He said, you, no, 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 you don't do that. So he keeps a, a lookout on her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a really cool relationship, and it, it occurs throughout the book, so he's a very important character as well. So, well, um, anything else? Uh, it's got a beautiful cover. Uh, I think this is my favorite of all these covers. It's really nice. By uh, uh, This is a Mattingly cover. Yeah, David has done some absolutely wonderful covers for me, and he sent me this lovely uh, print of it that he signed. I mean, it was so kind of him to do that, and I was moving and I was trying to box up all this stuff from 30 years of, you know, living in this house with my husband before he passed away and just going through all this stuff. And I remember one day I was just feeling like, oh gosh, I don't want to do any more of this. And that arrived. And I remember looking at it thinking, I wonder what this is. And I opened it up and it was this beautiful print that David was, you know, he never told me he was going to do it. He just sent it to me and he signed it. And wow, did that make my day. I mean, he is a very nice per I mean, not a very decent, he's nice, but more than that, he's a very decent human being. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's also, of, of course, a longtime uh, um, cover artist for all the David Weber books as well. He does the honor books. It's a good looking uh, set of books. And now there's three of them. Um, and uh, book three, which you can read alone, uh, it is a, a good standalone because these are mysteries, um, and the mystery starts and, and Baj deals with it. Um, book three is um, The Vanished Seas by Catherine Osaro. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for uh, talking with us about The Vanished Seas. Oh, it's my pleasure. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has won the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor.
Goodness me, Sir Martin Lessam murmured. I do believe those people want the wormhole. Do you really, sir? Commander Tory asked. Lessam glanced at him and nodded. What was your first indication, sir? Lessam snorted in amusement. Although, truth to tell, watching that many battlecruisers advancing towards his command wasn't the most amusing thing he'd ever done, especially given their acceleration rate. The Ghost Rider platforms had confirmed class IDs on the Sollies, and even at standard peacetime safety margins, the indefatigable and Nevada-class battlecruisers could have produced an acceleration of 3.83 kps squared. They were showing only 3.68 kps squared, however, 15 gravities lower than their 80% settings. That might not seem like a vast difference, but it had suggested, and the platforms had confirmed, just what those mystery recon drone impeller signatures were all about. Each of the incoming battlecruisers was towing a chain of missile pods outside its wedge, and the pods in question appeared nowhere in Tom Wozniak's databases on enemy capabilities. It was tempting to assume they represented a jury-rigged lash-up, improvised because of the Sally's technological inferiority. Come to that, that might actually be accurate. But those pods looked suspiciously like the donkeys Shannon Foraker had devised for the Republic of Haven Navy before the Republic's attack on Manticore. There were far too many of them for the number of ships on his display to be towing on individual tractors, and the clustered deployment patterns strongly suggested something more like the donkey than Manticore's tractor-equipped missile pods. More to the point, although the Solarian's acceleration was on the low side, it wasn't as low as it ought to be with that many pods on tow. And the reason it wasn't was that unlike Manticorin or Havenite missile pods, these had impellers of their own. From the modest strength of their wedges, it appeared the Sollies had probably grafted the impeller nodes of a standard recon drone onto them, which would explain CIC's initial confusion over what they were. Packing in those nodes had to have cut deeply into the pod's volume, and he doubted they could maintain their current acceleration level for an extended period out of onboard power. But if they were indeed the conceptual equivalent of Havenite donkeys, they were equipped only with tractors of their own and power and telemetry relays. The squeeze on their volume wouldn't cost the Sali commander any missiles, since they'd never been intended to carry missiles in the first place, and their impellers would go quite some way towards reducing the SLN's acceleration disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis the Grand Alliance. Plus Fleming's 80% acceleration rate was 5.697 kps squared, 60 gravities higher than a Nevada could turn out with no safety margin at all. If both ships went to maximum military acceleration, Class Fleming's advantage would be over 240 gravities. Nothing was going to let a Nevada overhaul a Saginami Sea from a standing start, but towing that many unpowered pods would have drastically reduced the Sollies' already sluggish acceleration rates. With the built-in drives, the battlecruiser's acceleration curves were only grossly inferior to his own, not hopelessly so. Jury-rigged or carefully thought through, though, they had to be a response to what the Grand Alliance's missiles had done to the Sollies ever since New Tuscany. The SLN's system defense pods, system defense was the only role in which the pre-war Sollies had ever considered employing missile pods, had neither needed nor possessed impellers of their own. So these things had to have been designed and put into production since the shooting started. In some ways, that was a small thing, scarcely likely to affect the balance of combat power in any significant way. As a harbinger of possible Solarian activity, though, it was worrisome to see it so soon. 
And there were a lot of whatever the hell they were out there. He didn't like the implications of that at all. What it said about the number of missiles which might shortly be fired in his command's direction was bad enough, although the Sollies' hit probabilities at extended range would still suck wind. The speed with which this new system had appeared was a lot worse, though. It would seem the Darwinian process he'd worried about had begun, and at least as bad, a single task force this far from home had deployed just under 5,000 of them, and they were towing a total of what appeared to be 30,000 unpowered missile pods. Assuming six to 10 cells per pod, that would represent between 180,000 and 300,000 missiles. And given the presence of what looked suspiciously like ammunition ships tagging along behind the battle cruisers, he suspected that was only the tip of the iceberg. So, in addition to evidence of Solarian adaptiveness, he was looking at proof of the League industrial infrastructure's capacity to put a brand new system into production in staggering numbers very, very quickly. Not good, he thought, not good at all. But those implications were for the future, and for the attention of better paid, more highly placed brains than his, he reminded himself. Best he focus his attention on whatever the Solly CO had in mind for TG 47.3. The Sollies had opened their formation as they'd closed, and the deployment they'd adopted wasn't exactly standard. They'd split into three roughly equal-sized subformations. He suspected they represented the other side's task group organization, advancing almost in a column formation, or perhaps like beads on a string towards the terminus. CIC had designated them Alpha-1 through Alpha-3, and they were spaced almost 900,000 kilometers apart, which suggested the Solarian commander had something clever in mind. Lessam was pretty sure he'd figured out what the something clever was, but he had no intention of getting too tightly wedded to his own cleverness. It was entirely possible the Sali had come up with something completely different. Current range, Polko, he asked. 36 million clicks, sir, Commander Palko Nakata, TG-47.3's astrogator replied. Closing at 16277 KPS. Thank you. They seem confident, sir, Tori observed. Of course, I expect Bing was pretty confident up until- Missile launch, Commander Wozniak announced suddenly. Multiple launches from Alpha-1. Estimate 6,000, repeat, 6000 inbound. First launch away, ma'am, Rear Admiral Rosiak announced. Thank you, Bart, Jane Isotalo said, as courteously as if she hadn't already seen the outgoing missile tracks from Vice Admiral Elvis Tsukahara's TG-1027.2. It was Rosiak's job to tell her that, after all. That familiar observation ran under the surface of her thoughts as she watched that first wave of improved cataphracts streak towards the mantis. Whatever the war might mean for the Solarian League in general, its timing had proved fortuitous for Technodyne of Yildun. The huge transstellar had faced enough criminal charges to make survival doubtful, even for a megacorporation its size. Over 30 members of its senior management had been sentenced to actual prison terms in light of certain embarrassing revelations, like the minor fact that the Republic of Monica had come into possession of a number of fully functional SLN battlecruisers with all classified tech systems intact and operational, which had been previously scrapped by Technodyne. In Isotalo's opinion, that minor fact had been a principal contributor, probably the principal contributor, come to that, to the unholy mess in which the League currently found itself.
but any additional penalties against Technodyne had evaporated in the face of the Grand Alliance's demonstrably superior warfighting technology. They hadn't evaporated because all was forgiven, but rather because Technodyne was one of the Navy's more important suppliers. One might more accurately have said the most important supplier. And its R&D staff had hit the ground running in the face of the Mantis' superiority. Indeed, Isotalo suspected Technodyne had been paying closer attention than the Office of Naval Intelligence to reports out of the Haven sector for quite some time, given how speedily the first cataphract multistage missiles had emerged from its workshops. The cataphract was both outsized and crude compared to current generation Manti technology. It was effectively no more than a standard missile with a laserhead armed counter missile glued to its nose. But at least it provided the Navy with a weapon which could actually reach the enemy. Obviously, Technodyne hadn't managed to duplicate the Mantis' targeting and fire control systems, which meant long-range accuracy remained pathetic, but a sufficiently dense salvo would still generate hits. And in order to provide that density, Technodyne had come up with what it had dubbed the Dispersed Weapons Module Mod 2, which interestingly suggested there had been a previous Mod 1, which it hadn't mentioned to anyone, christened the Husky by the Navy's TAC officers. Each Husky was a specialized towing drone equipped with a small impeller drive, a power receptor antenna, a telemetry relay, and eight tractor beams, each capable of towing one of Technodyne's missile pods. The Husky's onboard power was sufficient only for limited, very limited independent maneuvering, but it could always be towed by a mothership's tractors. As long as it could be hit by beamed power from that mothership, its endurance was effectively unlimited, however and it had been designed so that each husky could mother eight additional huskies. In theory, they could be daisy-chained four deep, with the actual missile pods forming the fifth tier of an enormous stack. That meant, again in theory, that a single tractor aboard a single warship could tow 1,024 missile pods. The latest tweaked version of the cataphract was somewhat bigger than the model Filaretta had taken to Manticore, and the new pods were individually smaller able to carry only six of Technodyne's latest mark. So in theory, in theory, that single shipboard tractor could have put 6,144 missiles into space. The power requirement would have far exceeded that of anything short of a super dreadnought, however. In fact, Isotalo doubted even a super dreadnought could have handled that many pods. And the best her battle cruisers could manage was just under 100 huskies and only 768 pods apiece which meant the battlecruisers of the lightest of her task groups had almost 12,000 missiles in its deployed pods. Without the Huskies' impellers, their acceleration would have been that of an arthritic tortoise, at best. With the Huskies' impellers, the effect of all that mass outside the battlecruisers' impeller wedges was negligible. And all told, that would let her bring over 36,000 missiles to the fight, which didn't even count the reserve aboard her colliers. They were packed with an additional 90,000 pods, even after deploying the Huskies in her first salvo. It seemed unlikely that a dozen Manti cruisers could stand up to over half a million cataphracts. On the other hand, the Mantis had demonstrated a perverse propensity for doing unlikely things to the Solarian League Navy. In addition to producing the Husky, the arms maker had tweaked its original cataphract, increasing its first stage acceleration by 20% which upped its maximum powered envelope from rest from 13,650,172 kilometers to 19,370,400.
Technodyne hadn't been able to do anything about light speed fire control limitations, however, and the additional acceleration wasn't a factor, at least for this launch. Rosiak had been forced to incorporate a ballistic phase into the attack, since even with the tweaks and her closing velocity at launch, her maximum powered envelope remained less than 32 million kilometers. Direct hits, especially against Manticoran missile defenses, would have been few and far between, even at 20 million kilometers. At 36 million, they were unlikely as hell, but that wasn't really what she was after. Show me what you've got, she thought silently, leaning back in her command chair as the missiles tore towards their targets. I don't care how good your missile defense systems are. You can't have a hell of a lot of them on that few platforms, so show me what they can do. Missile defense, Reno, Commodore Lessim said calmly, as he too watched the tidal bore of missiles sweep towards him, then glanced at the plot's vector analyses. Based on the performance of Massimo Filaretta's missiles, CIC was projecting a total flight time of 406 seconds, including a 151-second ballistic phase, and he pursed his lips as he watched the time display tick downward. There was time, if not a lot of it, to consider his options, and his brain whirred behind his thoughtful eyes. Missile defense, Reno, I, sir, Wozniak replied. Missile defense has good tracking data from the Ghost Riders, and bow walls are active now. He looked over his shoulder and smiled at the Commodore. I think these people are in for a surprise, sir. We can always hope. Lessam glanced at Commander Tory. I wonder what percentage of their total birds that represents. CIC makes it about 20%, sir. From the promptitude of his response, Tory had been thinking the same sort of things his Commodore had. I'm inclined to think it was probably exactly 20%, he continued, but Brent's not prepared to be quite that definite. Why am I not surprised? Lessam chuckled, never taking his eyes from the tactical plot. Commander Brent Crush, Class Fleming's tactical officer, was very good at his job. Joanne O'Reilly, Class Fleming's CO, thought the world of him, and Lessam was inclined to agree. But Crush was a precise sort. If he wasn't certain of his numbers to at least the tenth decimal point, the best he would give was a probable, and a very occasional highly probable, if he was confident to the ninth decimal point. Well, if this many birds are only 8% of what they could have thrown, they probably don't expect- Sir, there's something strange about their launch profile, Commander Wozniak said suddenly. Lessam turned from Turi to look at him, and the ops officer frowned unhappily. Sir, they're showing a lot more Excel than they should. The missiles we analyzed from 11th Fleet maxed at 701 KPS squared. These birds are coming in at over 840. Lessam inhaled sharply, remembering his earlier thoughts about Solarian innovation and productivity. Assuming the drive endurance on both stages is the same as on Filaretta's, that gives them a powered envelope of almost 32 million clicks, Wozniak continued. That drops their ballistic phase to barely 4 million clicks and roughly 24 seconds, which makes their total flight time only 279 seconds. I see. Lessam's voice was level, but his brain raced. His decision loop had just become 134 seconds shorter than he'd assumed it was, and he'd already lost 10 of them finding that out. His ship's hypergenerators were at readiness, which meant they could pop into the alpha bands on less than a minute's notice. Well, all of them except David K. Brown, that was. The FSV had military-grade impellers, inertial compensator, and hypergenerator, 
but she also massed over seven times as much as Klaus Fleming, and size was a factor in hypergenerator cycle times as well as acceleration rates. A Saiganami C like Klaus Fleming could translate into hyper from readiness in 44.6 seconds, whereas one of the larger Solarian Nevada class battlecruisers would need 55.7. A 3 million ton FSV, however, required 118.8 and would have needed better than three minutes if she'd mounted a civilian grade generator, which posed at least one interesting question since the three transports or freighters in company with the Sali battlecruisers massed more than twice that much and they appeared to have civilian-grade impellers. If they mounted civilian generators as well, their minimum cycle time would be almost three and a half times as long as brownies. Hypercycle times meant very little under normal battle conditions, since no one could enter or leave hyper inside a star's hyper limit anyway. They meant quite a lot this far outside a limit, however, as Geneviève Chin had discovered when she encountered Duchess Harrington's Apollo-armed super dreadnoughts outside Manticore A's limit. The People's Republic's analysts had radically underestimated Apollo's effective range, and all of Chin's intelligence briefings had told her she was well outside it when 8th Fleet launched against her. The 44-million-kilometer ballistic phase Duchess Harrington had been forced to incorporate into her launch just to reach Chin's ships had confirmed that she was outside effective shipboard fire control range, and so she had been, but not very far outside it. Eighth Fleet had been close enough to update the Apollo control platforms in near real time just before it released them to autonomous control. And that autonomous control had been enormously better than anyone in the PRH had believed it could be. Even with that update, the Mark 23s had been far less accurate than they would have been at three light minutes, as opposed to the four light minutes at which they'd been launched. They'd simply been far more accurate than the peeps had anticipated. To Chin's credit, her own tactical instincts had overridden her O&I briefing when Duchess Harrington's MDMs shut down and went ballistic. But it had taken a few seconds for the shutdown to be reported to her. Then it had taken 15 or 20 more seconds for her instincts to overrule her briefing. That was really a remarkably quick response, all things considered, but the clock had been ticking. And it had taken several more seconds for her flagship to transmit the order to hyper out. Then it had taken several more seconds for her captains to receive it and a handful more for their astrogators to respond and engineering to begin the cycle. She'd run out of seconds. The cycle time on her super dreadnoughts hypergenerators, the minimum time required to translate even from full readiness, had been over four and a half minutes, and total flight time for Eighth Fleet's missiles from the moment their second stage drive shut down had been only 5.2 minutes. A difference of less than 40 seconds didn't sound like all that much but its consequences for her command had been catastrophic. The cycle times for Lessam ships, even David K. Brown, were far shorter than that, and he'd thought he could wait over five minutes from the moment the Solarians launched and still get the FSV into hyper to avoid the incoming fire. For that matter, his lighter ships would have had over six minutes to play with. Now, though, no need to panic just yet, I think, he said, crossing to stand behind Wozniak and rest one hand on his shoulder as he gazed past the ops officer to his displays. Not until they're willing to show us more missiles in a single launch. Makes you wonder what other surprises they may have for us, though, doesn't it? That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. 
And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Bain intern Will Allen. And to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And drinks all around made with a dash of fantasies, a peck of bronze skies, plus a whole oil tanker load of vodka. Poured on an iceberg and shaken, not stirred by earthquake and tsunami for plenipotentary planetary delight. Plus thanks, praise, and songs of gratitude for Catherine Asaru, author of The Vanished Seas. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 